The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it was written in Russian. Then the translations began, and the English-speaking world was smitten. Novelist E.M. Forster wrote that no English novelist has explored man's soul as deeply as Dostoevsky. Ernest Hemingway said Dostoevsky, quote, is the man more than any other who has created modern prose and intensified it to its present-day pitch. It was his explosive power which shattered the Victorian novel with its simpering maidens and ordered commonplaces, books which were without imagination or violence. End quote. And one of our heroes, one of the queens of literature, Virginia Woolf, said, quote, The novels of Dostoevsky are seething whirlpools, gyrating sandstorms, waterspouts which hiss and boil and suck us in. They are composed purely and wholly of the stuff of the soul. Against our wills we are drawn in, whirled around, blinded, suffocated, and at the same time filled with a giddy rapture. Outside of Shakespeare, she concluded, there is no more exciting reading. End quote. And after reading one of his novels while on her honeymoon, Virginia Woolf said simply, Dostoevsky is the greatest of writers. The novel she was reading was called Crime and Punishment. We explore that novel and its creator and its legacy today on The History of Literature. Okay, hello, 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 everyone. Here we go. We Wow, lots to cover. This is an incredible book. I don't really need to, need to make a pitch for it, do I? Let's check out our friends over at the list of lists. They can help us out here. Thegreatestbooks.org, which gathers all of these top tens and best ofs and, and best 100s and all of those lists like that. They compile them all. And then they give us the output. We can see where we land with this book, Crime and Punishment. I haven't checked this in advance, so I'm going to go out on a limb here. If Crime and Punishment is not in the top 10 greatest of greatest novels of all time, I guess I'll look a little foolish. If it's fallen out of the top 100, let's say, then I'll really have egg on my face. But I think it will be better than that. I'm guessing... What's going to be up there? Lord of the Rings, because that always surprises me at how high that goes. But I'm I'm guessing that one, Crime and Punishment, should be higher than that. But what might be higher? War and Peace, Anna Karenina, Proust, Ulysses, maybe something recent like Gatsby, or even more recent like Beloved, or Garcia Marquez. Murakami, Haruki Murakami, very popular here at the History of Literature podcast, but he might not be quite famous enough yet to make all of these lists. The Brontes, Pride and Prejudice, Don Quixote, although I do wonder if Mike's rant against that book has had any effect at all. I'm getting excited now <laughs> seeing what the list is. I'm wondering if Mike's rant against Don Quixote has dragged it down at all. I'll put in a vote for Moby Dick, which I read not too long ago. Great novel. Dickens might be up there. You know, he'd probably be up there if he had one great novel. But otherwise, he's probably going to be like those uh, 
those movies that the Academy Awards rolls around and they have two great leads and they split the vote. Dickens's novels might do that. Which one would it be? Great Expectations? Well, some people love Bleak House or, or David Copperfield, Oliver Twist, Tale of Two Cities, A Christmas Carol. He's going to divide his own vote. Okay, here we go. Checking now. Hmm. Okay, so... <laughs> not quite top ten, but you know what? There have been a lot of great books. <laughs> and this isn't just novels. It's got Hamlet in here. I didn't know that was going to be. I guess it, I should have known. No short stories, of course. They're always underrated. Chekhov comes in, but kind of fired out. Okay, let's go through them. Our list of great books. This is, once again, this is a, not just one person deciding. This is hundreds, thousands of voters who are all, and not just for one survey or one vote. This is 130 different lists that are compiled. Okay, so let's go through them from this wide variety of sources and see what's ahead of today's classic. Number one, Proust. In Search of Lost Time. I'm starting to get used to that title, although I still, in my secret heart, prefer the Shakespearean remembrance of things past, but we don't need to we don't need to be all literal all the time, do we? But anyway, moving on. Number two, Ulysses by James Joyce. That's a worthy choice. Number three, Cervantes. Enough said about that one. Four is one hundred years of solitude. Wow. That's pretty high, but it is a great book. Number five is The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. We're going to have a, a Fitzgerald episode coming up soon, along with A Tender is the Night episode. Mike, our friend Mike Palindrome, believes that that book is better than Gatsby. We'll see what we think about that. Number six is Moby Dick. Starting to get a little worried here. <laughs> Crime and Punishment. <laughs> We still have to go with Hamlet, which made the top ten. Seven is War and Peace. We haven't even had Anna Karenina yet. Eight is Hamlet, the first book that's not a novel. Nine is The Odyssey. Okay, fine. We still don't have the Iliad on here. And where is Anna Karenina? Ten. Oh, ten is Madame Bovary. Didn't see that one coming. Eleven is The Divine Comedy. Wow. Another, that should have been top 10. That's another show we need to do. Maybe we'll do a summer with Dante next year if you're up for it. I just went yesterday, actually, to see a Dante exhibit here at the in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian Museum, the Museum of Art. There's a lot of artworks, including William Blake and others, devoted to the Divine Comedy. Okay, number 12, I think. This is a little high, Lolita Nabokov, because guess what? Here we go. Number 13 is the Brothers Karamazov. Dostoevsky might be splitting his own vote here. And 14 is Crime and Punishment. So there we go. 14, not too shabby. Let's round out the top 20 just for fun. 15 is Wuthering Heights. Bronte beats Bronte, I guess. 16 is J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. I think that's probably dropping. I don't think that'll be in the top 20, 20 years from now. 
Although it's a good book. 17, Pride and Prejudice. Should be higher. Huck Finn, 18. Anna Karenina at 19. And 20 is Alice in Wonderland. Just edging out The Iliad and To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. What do you notice about that list in terms of Dostoevsky anyway? I'll say this. He's the only author to have two books in the, well, I guess Tolstoy has two books in the top 20, but Dostoevsky has two books in the top 14. And then the next one after those two giants with two entries is William Faulkner, who lands with the sound and the fury at 25 and Absalom, Absalom at 30. So, okay, why? Why do I care about this? Why should you? A list of lists says something, don't you think? If you're the type of person who checks out recommendations and who will click on a link that says these are the books you should read or so-and-so chooses his favorite books of all time or readers have voted on dot, 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 their favorite books or the greatest books, etc. Well, it shows it shows that these books are highly regarded and worthy and timeless, even if you yourself don't care for a particular book. This tells you that your fellow humans care, and the culture has been formed by your fellow humans reading books like this. To the extent they're readers and engaged with the project of reading and thinking about stories, long-form stories in particular, this list is dominated by novels, almost exclusively, or novel-length poems like Dante and Homer, and a novelistic play like Hamlet. These are books to engage with, and Crime and Punishment is such a book. We'll engage with it today. Here's what we're going to do. We'll ask these questions. Who was Dostoevsky when he wrote this book? Where was he in life? What sources did he have? Any predecessors? One big one in particular. What motivated him to write this book? Or should we say, what inspired him? What was his plan? What's actually in it? What story does it tell? And what has it meant for the world to have this book? Namely, what about the central conceit, the heart of the book, the one you can't forget if you've read it? We'll take a look at some real worlds, a famous real world influence that the book had and the ideas in the book had, and we'll see what we make of that. So let's begin. Oh, one quick pause to say we're still taking suggestions for the greatest guest you would like to have on the show. Maybe there's an author or a scholar or a celebrity or someone else whom you would like me to book or try to book. How about Oprah Winfrey? Have you heard of her? <laughs> or Reese Witherspoon? She has a popular book club. Maybe you want me to talk to her, see what that's all about. Or maybe you're thinking of a Nobel Prize winner or candidate or some popular young poet or a thoughtful actor slash novelist like Ethan Hawke. Or maybe it's a professor or biographer or someone else who's less well-known, but who will bring something good to the table. You tell me, your dream guest, this is your chance, and I will try to deliver one of these on behalf of the listening community. One of these by Christmas, that's the plan. So go to historyofliterature.com, 
and click contact or send an email to historyofliteraturepodcast at gmail.com. Okay, dream guest for me, Dostoevsky, if he were alive, but Raskolnikov would be a pretty fascinating person to talk to as well. One character in a book, if I could interview one character, that's tough. I suppose it'd be Marcel, although where would one begin with that guy? Maybe Sancho Panza would be fun, or Emma Bovary. These people are like my best friends. Okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Quick break, and then we'll get started with Crime and Punishment. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, our first question, who was Dostoevsky when he wrote this book? Young, was he young or was he old? Was he established or not? Was this before or after that trip he made to the firing squad and Siberia? Was he comfortable or desperate, rich or poor, immersed in politics, etc.? Let's see. Well, a quick recap of his life. Dostoevsky was born in Moscow in 1821 to a family of some nobility and also Russian Orthodox Christianity. His mother came from a line of merchants. His father came from a line of priests. His father was a doctor, first for the military and then for the poor. They had two children at first, Fyodor and his older brother, Mikhail, and then six more children, five of whom survived infancy. Early on, Dostoevsky learned to read by studying the Bible, then expanded his views and his reading interests to Cervantes and Sir Walter Scott, the Iliad and the Odyssey, Russian literature like Pushkin and Gogol. He read Goethe. His parents read to him every night. He didn't have a especially close relationship with his father, but he did recall those nighttime readings. He was sent to a French boarding school and then to a Moscow school with some other aristocrats, aristocratic kids, with whom he did not fit in well. His mother died when he was 15. Dostoevsky would soon train for the military as an engineer, as did his elder brother, 
and Fyodor in particular did not do well. He was dreaming of being a writer. A friend at the time said, quote, There was no student in the entire academy less capable of military bearing than Fyodor Dostoevsky. He didn't pay much attention to his work. He was taken into the St. Petersburg Engineering Corps afterwards, but he was so immersed in literature that he didn't give the designs much thought. He once designed a fortress that had no gates. And the plan was accidentally submitted to Tsar Nicholas I, who looked at it and said, What idiot drew this? <laughs> that idiot was someday to be the author of the book. The idiot. Okay. His father, Dostoevsky's father, died in 1839. In 1843, Fyodor took a job as an engineer, but he was still working on his literary career. He translated Balzac and then several other books. This, these didn't bring him much money. So broke, he wrote a novel called Poor Folk, his first novel. This was in May of 1845. As its name suggests, it was a social novel and brought Dostoevsky into the world of the socialists. He was an uneasy advocate or ally, shall we say, of socialism. He liked its logic and its sense of justice, but he was deeply religious, a man of faith to his core, and he couldn't square himself with atheism. He wrote another novel and some short stories, and he joined a group of poets and other writers who were advocating for political reform. The most innocent and harmless company, the writer Bakunin once wrote, opposed to all revolutionary goals and means. What was Dostoevsky doing? Well, he read books in their library, and he engaged in discussions on topics like freedom from censorship and the abolition of serfdom. But this was an era of fairly strict repression. The circle, a lot of crackdowns. The circle was denounced. Dostoevsky was accused of reading and circulating the wrong books. A commission headed by Napoleonic war hero General Ivan Nabokov, yes, you heard that name correctly. It's a, one of Vladimir's progenitors, Vladimir descended from Ivan's brother. But that's who was heading up the commission, the investigation into F. Dostoevsky. In 1849, after the investigation, Dostoevsky and the other members of the circle were condemned to illegal for illegal political activity, and he and the other prisoners were led out to a courtyard to be shot. All this had been staged in advance. Coffins were standing at the ready. But this was to maximize the punitive nature of this terrorizing incident. At the last moment, the shootings were called off. One of the other prisoners went mad from the experience and never recovered. Dostoevsky, along with others, were sent to Siberia plus army service. Fyodor wrote to his brother Mikhail hours after the event, quote, Brother, I'm not despondent and I haven't lost heart. Life is everywhere. Life is in us ourselves, not outside. There will be people by my side, and to be a human being among people and to remain one forever, no matter in what circumstances, not to grow despondent and not to lose heart, 
That's what life is all about. That's its task. I have come to recognize that. The idea has entered my flesh and blood. The head that created lived the higher life of art that recognized and grew accustomed to the higher demands of the spirit. That head has already been cut from my shoulders. But there remain in me a heart and the same flesh and blood that can also love and suffer in pity. And remember, that's life too. End quote. The letter went on. If anyone remembers me with malice, and if I quarreled with anyone, if I made a bad impression on anyone, tell them to forget about that if you manage to see them. There is no bile or spite in my soul. I would like to so love and embrace at least someone out of the past at this moment. When I look back at the past and think how much time was spent in vain, how much of it was lost in delusions, in errors, in idleness, in the inability to live, how I failed to value it, how many times I sinned against my heart and spirit, then my heart contracts in pain. Life is a gift. Life is happiness. Each moment could have been an eternity of happiness. End quote. This is the effect that the incident had on Dostoevsky. Terrorizing, sure, but also a joy, a giddy excitement at being still alive and a clarifying moment just before he was sent to Siberia to prison and a labor camp. He was there for several years. In 1857, while he was still in Siberia, Dostoevsky got married. While on his honeymoon, he suffered his first epileptic seizure. His wife was traumatized. She knew nothing of this, of his ailments, or that he had a family history of this. She had, and she had no background or understanding, no, no basis in understanding what was wrong. All that happened to, from her point of view was she heard an unearthly shriek saw her husband thrashing about, his limbs convulsing. He was foaming at the mouth, urinating uncontrollably. Dostoevsky, when he came to, was mortified. He wrote to his brother, It scared my wife to death and filled me with sadness and depression. I begged the doctor to tell me the whole truth on his honor. He advised me to beware of the new moon. End quote. What a... What a diagnosis and set of advice that is. Beware of the new moon. Almost as if he's he's treating an animal, a werewolf. Okay. Before Dostoevsky had been diagnosed as having nervous ailments, now it was recognized as epilepsy. And Dostoevsky was told that he would likely die of suffocation from it someday. Which brings us up to the verge of writing Crime and Punishment. One of the motivations for writing the book was financial. He was in debt perpetually. In 1854, age 32, he was released from prison. A description of him as he was released from an admirer of his writing was that Dostoevsky, quote, looked morose. His sickly pale face was covered with freckles and his blonde hair was cut short. He was a little over average height and looked at me intensely with his sharp gray-blue eyes. It was as if he were trying to look into my soul 
and discover what kind of man I was, end quote. At that point, Dostoevsky began writing again, publishing short stories, publishing some longer books, writing about prison conditions. His brother Mikhail had some money from running a cigarette factory. The two brothers used that money to start up a literary magazine. He visited Dostoevsky. Fyodor visited Paris and lost almost all of his money gambling. His wife and his brother Mikhail that year, later that year, both died. The magazine that he was running was suppressed. And then he got remarried, but he was struggling financially. A year later, he and his bride, dead broke, were on the run, escaping debtor's prison by fleeing abroad. They sold their clothing, but this didn't pay for even the hotel bill or could even really cover their food. Finally, an advance from a publisher came in and Dostoevsky immediately lost the entire amount at the roulette table. At this point, he's, he's in quite a state. He's also believed for the last year and a half that he had discovered the key to history and he knew that the apocalypse was coming within months. But in the meantime, he needed money. He needed to write something big to avoid bankruptcy. And he had plans for just such a novel. One of the things I've always connected thematically to Crime and Punishment was the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Telltale Heart. Both works, in their broadest sense, are about a similar idea. The idea that guilt will haunt a criminal. A perfect crime, a well-concealed murder. Well, first of all, you'll be punished by your own guilty conscience, your paranoia. It's not a secret that a human is strong enough to harbor the guilt of a murder. Down that path, murdering someone and trying to live with it after, down that path lies madness. That's kind of the point of the telltale heart, right? And so I was pleased to see that Dostoevsky was not only a fan of Edgar Allan Poe, he published in his journal that he was running before it went defunct, he published a Russian translation of The Telltale Heart, along with two other stories, The Black Cat and The Devil in the Belfry. And he wrote an introduction to The Telltale Heart, while to all three stories as well. Let's hear what he thinks of Edgar Allan Poe. Here's an excerpt from his introduction. This is from his journal, Vremya in 1861. Quote, Two or three stories by Edgar Poe have already been translated and published in Russian magazines. Here we present to our readers three more. What a strange, though enormously talented writer, that Edgar Poe. His work can hardly be labeled as purely fantastic. And insofar as it falls into this category, its fantasticalness is a merely external one, if one may say so. He admits, for instance, that an Egyptian mummy that had lain 5,000 years in a pyramid was recalled into life with the help of galvanism. Or he presumes that a dead man, again by means of galvanism, tells the state of his mind, and so on and so on. Yet such an assumption alone does not make a story really fantastic. Poe merely supposes the outward possibility of an unnatural event, 
though he always demonstrates logically that possibility and does it sometimes even with astounding skill. And this premise, once granted, he and all the rest proceeds quite realistically. In this, he differs essentially from the fantastic as used, for example, by Hoffman. The latter personifies the forces of nature in images, introduces in his tales sorceresses and specters, and seeks his ideals in a far-off, utterly unearthly world, and not only assumes this mysterious magical world as superior, but seems to believe in its real existence. Not so Edgar Poe. Not fantastic should he be called, but capricious. And how odd are the vagaries of his fancy, and at the same time how audacious. He chooses as a rule the most extravagant reality, places his hero in a most extraordinary outward or psychological situation, and then describes the inner state of that person with marvelous acumen and amazing realism. Moreover, there exists one characteristic that is singularly peculiar to Poe and which distinguishes him from every other writer, and that is the vigor of his imagination. Not that his fancy exceeds that of all other poets, but his imagination is endowed with a quality which in such magnitude we have not met anywhere else, namely the power of details. Try, for instance, yourselves to realize in your mind anything that is very unusual or has never before occurred and is only conceived as possible, and you will experience how vague and shadowy an image will appear before your inner eye. You will either grasp more or less general traits of the inward image, or you will concentrate upon the one or the other particular fragmentary feature. Yet Edgar Poe presents the whole fancied picture or events in all its details with such stupendous plasticity that you cannot but believe in the reality or possibility of a fact which actually never has occurred and even never could happen. Thus he describes in one of his stories a voyage to the moon, and his narrative is so full and particular, hour by hour following the imagined travel, that you involuntarily succumb to the illusion of its reality. In the same way, he once told in an American newspaper the story of a balloon that crossed the ocean from Europe to the New World, and his tale was so circumstantial, so accurate, so filled with unexpected accidental happenings, in short, was so realistic and truthful that at least for a couple of hours, everybody was convinced the reported fact, and only later investigation proved it to be entirely invented. The same power of imagination, or rather combining power, characterizes his stories of the purloined letter, of the murder committed by an orangutan, of the discovered treasure, and so on. End quote. How wonderful is that? We talk a lot about writers trying to cast aside their predecessors, the anxiety of influence, etc. Poe seems almost uniquely able to inspire future generations of writers. The way they admired him. Here we have an example of his impact on Russian literature. It's easy to see Dostoevsky reading The Telltale Heart, admiring the detail and the immersion of Poe's imaginative power on that scenario of the guy who kills the old man, his landlord, and is then 
haunted by sounds as he sits on the floorboards above the corpse, talking to police officers who have come to question him. It's easy to draw a line straight from that incident to Raskolnikov being questioned by the authorities after he's committed his crime. That's an example of Russian literature taking its lead from Poe. French literature was similarly influenced. Good old Edgar. Okay, let's take our final break, and then we'll listen to Dostoevsky's own plan for what his new novel would be. Okay, so we are with Dostoevsky. He's got an idea for a big book. He needs to write a big book to get himself out of some debts. And he's been successful, but not always financially successful in his life. And when he has been successful, he's mostly gambled the money away. So he writes to a publisher. He's kind of burned his bridges with a few different publishers, and not all of them want to take him on. But he has he reaches out to a publisher that he respects, let's say, although they don't always see eye to eye. But he's hoping that this publisher, whose name was Ketkov, will overlook those things and give him a chance, take a chance on his novel, and more importantly, send him in advance for the money of it. Okay, this is in the first half of September. We can date the letter to that, 1865, from Weisbaden. To M. N. Katkov, first half of September, 1865, Weisbaden. Kind Sir Mikhail Nikiforovich, may I hope to have my story published in your magazine, Russian Messenger. I have been working on it for two months now here in Weisbaden, and it is nearing completion. It will contain between five and six printer's sheets. I still have a couple of weeks' work left on it, or perhaps a bit more. In any case, I can promise definitely that in a month at the very latest, I could deliver it to the editorial offices of Russian Messenger. The idea of my story, as far as I can see, in no wise runs counter to your magazine. Indeed, quite the contrary. It is a psychological account of a crime. Action is topical, set in the current year. A young student of lower middle class origin who has been expelled from the university and who lives in dire poverty succumbs, through thoughtlessness and lack of strong convictions, to certain strange, incomplete ideas that are floating in the air, and decides to get out of his misery once and for all. He resolves to kill an old woman the widow of a titular counselor who lends out money for interest. The old crone is stupid, deaf, sick, and greedy. She is wicked and makes the life of her younger sister, whom she treats as a servant, wretched. She is good for nothing. What does she live for? Is she of any use to anyone at all? And so on. These questions disorient the young man. He decides to kill and rob her, 
in order to bring happiness to his mother, who is living in the provinces, and to rest his sister, who is living as a companion in the house of some landowners, from the lewd demands of the head of the household, demands that may lead to her perdition. He also wants to finish his studies and to go abroad, and afterward, for the rest of his life, to be honest, firm, and steadfast in the performance of his humanitarian duties toward mankind, which certainly would expiate his crime, if one can actually call a crime his act against a stupid, deaf, vicious, sick old crone who herself does not know why she is living and who may die anyway in a month or so. Despite the fact that such crimes are very difficult to carry out, i.e. criminals practically always leave glaring clues, evidence, etc. behind them, and leave too much to chance, which almost always leads to their discovery, he, by sheer accident, carries off the execution of his enterprise quickly and successfully. Afterward, Almost a month goes by before the final catastrophe. He is not and cannot possibly be suspect, and it is just at this point that the entire psychological process of crime unfolds itself. Insoluble problems arise before the murderer. Unsuspected and unforeseen things torment his mind. Divine truth and human law take their toll, and he ends up by being driven to give himself up. He is driven to this because, even though doomed to perish in penal servitude, it will make him one with the people again, and the feeling of being cut off and isolated from humanity that he had experienced from the moment he committed the crime had been torturing him. The law of truth and human nature won out. The criminal himself decides to accept suffering to expiate his deed. However, it is rather difficult for me to make my ideas completely clear. Besides this, my story contains the suggestion that the legal penalty imposed for the commission of a crime frightens the offender less than the lawmakers think, partly because it is he himself who demands it morally. I have seen that myself, in even the most backward individuals in the crudest circumstances. I would like to show that this feeling is present in an educated man of the new generation, so that the idea would be more striking and more tangible. Several recent occurrences have convinced me that there is nothing terribly unusual about my subject, namely the fact that my murderer is well-educated and is even a young man with praiseworthy inclinations. Last year in Moscow, I heard of a student who, expelled from the university after the Moscow student disorders, decided to break into a post office and kill a postal employee. There is also considerable evidence in our newspapers that the extreme inconstancy of our principles has resulted in horrible acts. The seminary student who made a pact with a young girl to kill her killed her in a barn and was picked up one hour later while he was eating his lunch, and other such things. In brief, I am convinced that my subject will in a way explain what is happening today. It goes without saying that this outline of the idea of my story entirely leaves out the plot. But it will be engrossing, that I will vouch for, although I cannot take it upon myself to judge its artistic merits. I have been too often forced to write very, very poor pieces 
because I have had to hurry and meet deadlines, etc. But this particular story has been written unhurriedly and with ardor, and I shall try, if only for my own sake, to make the ending as good as I can. I leave the price entirely to your discretion. You may determine it after you have read my story. I understand that many writers working with you proceed in this way. But in any case, I should like to get per printer's sheets no less than the minimum I have been receiving up to now, i.e. 125 rubles. But again, I leave this entirely up to you, and I firmly believe that that will be to my best advantage. Forgive me if I pass on now to my private affairs. I find myself in a very bad situation at the moment. I went abroad at the beginning of July with hardly any money to gain back my health. I was hoping to wind up a work I had started, but then I got involved in another story, the one I'm writing now, and I do not regret it. However, this forces me to ask you for an advance of 300 rubles now, in the event, of course, that you are interested in my work. I beg you, much esteemed Nikhail Nikifor, not to view my request for 300 rubles as in any way a condition for offering my peace to you. That is not the case at all. It is simply a favor I am asking of you to help me out at a particularly difficult moment, and, of course, a favor which is worthy of consideration, only if, I repeat again, you manifest your willingness to take my work. Whatever your decision, I should greatly appreciate it if you did not leave me for a long time without an answer from the editors of your magazine. In my present straits, every minute is precious. I imagine that, although I myself hope to be back in Russia in a month, I shall be able to send you my work in three weeks. All yours, F. Dostoevsky. End quote. Well, he wasn't ready in three weeks, but the editor... The publisher did send him the advance. In November, with the book nearly complete, he turned everything he had. He, oh, sorry, he burned everything he had and started over. I didn't like it myself, he wrote to a friend. A new plan excited me and I started all over again. He shifted to the third person, among other changes. The result was eventually published in the Russian Messenger, which was also serializing Tolstoy's War and Peace at the same time. Imagine being a subscriber to that journal. Must have felt like we used to feel when we bought an album, and it had not just one or two hits on it, but five or six. You'd think, wow, I got all this for eight bucks? That was me with Thriller, for example. I'd have been happy with Beat It and Billie Jean and filler. Instead, that thing was loaded. Good value. Imagine getting your edition. Oh, I got Tolstoy's War and Peace is going on, and here's a new work, Crime and Punishment. <laughs> Bravo, Russian messenger. And its editor, Katkov, who apparently, even though he didn't see eye to eye with Dostoevsky politically, knew talent when he saw it. They say they estimated that 500 new subscribers signed up when they started reading Crime and Punishment, which is laughably small by our standards. 500 new subscribers, but everything worked on a smaller scale in those days. The novel Crime and Punishment was a success. And it would soon be a success throughout the world. 
translations into the story, which as Dostoevsky wrote in the letter of this student who kills the old crone and who then suffers from a guilty conscience afterwards, even though he could get away with it, perhaps. He's haunted, and when the punishment comes for him, he welcomes it. He welcomes the suffering that it will bring to expiate those sins. It was a success throughout the world. Translations into English and French followed, and the novel has been cited by Virginia Woolf and James Joyce and D.H. Lawrence and Camus, among many others. Who are we really? What's in our soul? How do we get along with others? What morality dwells within us? And what is imposed externally? What obligations do we have toward one another? Are we free beyond the limits of law and morality? Or are we in a realm where we get to decide and say who lives and dies when it's for the greater good? And if we're not beyond the limits of those laws, conventional laws, conventional morality, if we're not beyond, then why not? What stops it? What stops that from happening? The novel may have been inspired by Poe, but it obviously goes deeper, finding a kind of redemption in suffering, showing us characters who love and showing us a character, Raskolnikov, in profound transformation. It also has a somewhat negative legacy, as people have sought to test themselves against Dostoevsky. To go wrong in one's own way is better than to go right in someone else's, is one of the quotes in Crime and Punishment. Dostoevsky's character Raskolnikov sets out the problem, should another die so that I can live my life to the fullest, so that I can help people, Why shouldn't they die if I'm stronger, I'm better, if my life is worth more, if I can do more good by ending this life? We wrestle with questions like this all the time, even if we don't think we are. Even those of us who aren't picking up an axe and heading for the staircase that will take us to the crone. Society wrestles with issues. How much should insurance cover? What kind of resources do we pour into people facing terminal illness? Do we drain the family coffers for a surgery unlikely to succeed or unlikely to prolong the quality of life that we would like our loved ones to have? Almost always we say that we will and we we do do that. If there's any chance at all, a life is worth more than money. But what about the uninsured? the poor, the mentally ill, the starving. What do we as a society do for them? We're all making some choices about living at the expense of others. That's inevitable. But that is a far cry from deciding to end a life for personal gain or for a higher purpose, a higher sense of morality. But if you believe that you are special, if you believe you're unique, if you believe you're Designed for greatness, you must wonder, not should I do it, but could I do it? Would I be the narrator of the telltale heart or Raskolnikov doomed by my conscience, or can I live above the laws of human beings? You might say that Nietzsche is the supreme philosopher of this line of thought. 
But let's remember that Dostoevsky did not come from Nietzsche. He died before Nietzsche had really gotten going. But Dostoevsky anticipated Nietzsche and he influenced him. Nietzsche was a, a fan of Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, said Nietzsche, is the only psychologist from whom I have anything to learn. And he said that finding Nietzsche ranked amongst the most beautiful strokes of fortune in his life. Which brings me to a pair of men who lived in Chicago who were besotted by Nietzsche and Dostoevsky too, but especially Nietzsche. Nathan Frudenthal Leopold Jr. and Richard Albert Loeb, University of Chicago students forever known to history as Leopold and Loeb. These men committed a murder for no real reason other than to test themselves against their theory that some people were beyond the laws that applied to the rest of the world. Let's hear what happened to them. But first, who were they? Both were wealthy, born to wealthy families. Both were prodigies, gifted, extremely intelligent. Leopold could reportedly speak at the age of four. That, is, that doesn't sound so unusual, does it? I meant to say he could speak at the age of four months. He had studied 15 languages and could speak five of them fluently while he was still a teenager. Loeb was a year younger they were friends as children. They knew each other. They grew up in the same neighborhood. Loeb was a year behind him, but he was also extremely intelligent. He entered high school at the age of 12, graduated in two years, and graduated from college at the University of Michigan by age 17, the youngest graduate in university history. He started law school after that in Chicago, where he met up again with Leopold, who was there studying too. He loved, Loeb loved crime stories and historical novels. He also played tennis and was somewhat more social than Leopold and a little less interested in intellectual pursuits. Leopold was sort of their intellectual leader living in an abstract world. He was fascinated by the concept of Nietzsche's Ubermensch or Superman. He believed that he, Leopold, was such a man and he believed that Loeb was another. He talked him into it. And like Raskolnikov before his murders, Leopold believed that the two of them were exempt from the ordinary laws that governed men. Raskolnikov draws upon the example of Napoleon. Wasn't this a man who was beyond the moral code applicable to most men? Wasn't history full of these examples? And weren't they often regarded in retrospect as heroes? If you can save lives or transform society for the better, are you not in some sense obligated to do so, even if it's at the expense of, of other people, even if you cause some deaths along the way, even if it's at the expense of an old lady nobody cares for who is in fact wicked, a drag on society? Nietzsche says that this is how people are going to start thinking. And Leopold and Loeb said, yes, here we are. They pulled off a few smaller crimes. They broke into a fraternity house in Michigan, and they stole a typewriter and some other objects. Then they graduated to bigger crimes, including arson. 
and eventually, disappointed by the, the lack of publicity, they decided it was time to try murder. They were still teenagers, 19 for Leopold, 18 for Loeb, and they chose a younger teenager as their victim, Bobby Franks, the 14-year-old son of a wealthy watch manufacturer who had also grown up in their neighborhood in Chicago. He was, in fact, Loeb's second cousin and lived across the street. Leopold and Loeb, working up their perfect crime, decided to disguise the murder of Bobby Franks as a kidnapping for ransom money. This was their plan to fool everyone. They typed up a ransom note on the typewriter they had stolen. They bought a chisel. They rented a car under a false name. They drove up to Frank's as he walked home from school one day, and they offered him a ride. He refused, pointing out that he was only two blocks from home. They then said that they wanted to show him a tennis racket. Bobby Franks had, in fact, played tennis at Loeb's house in the past. And Franks got in the car. What happened when he was in the car was disputed later. But it appears that Leopold was driving, Franks was in the passenger seat, and Loeb, sitting in the back, struck Franks in the head with the chisel. Then he pulled Franks into the back into the back seat and gagged him until he was dead. He stashed the body on the floorboard, and the three of them drove 25 miles away to a dumping spot near a lake in Indiana. They waited until nightfall then removed and discarded Franks's clothes, concealed the body in a culvert, and poured hydrochloric acid on his face and genitals, the former to disguise his identity, the latter to disguise the fact of his circumcision. So far, so good from a perfect crime standpoint. Would they fall apart, a la Raskolnikov? Or did this prove their ubermensch status? Remember what Dostoevsky had said in his letter. Often people lead, leave clues as well. They're, they're a little careless. Something goes wrong. They, they, it's not well thought out. Well, Leopold and Loeb thought they had it all worked out because they believed they were superior. They returned to Chicago where they enacted the rest of this plan. Leopold called Franks's mother to pretend to be someone named George Johnson and saying that Franks had been kidnapped and that ransom instructions would follow. They mailed her a typed-up ransom note. They also burned their blood-stained clothing, cleaned the rented vehicle as best they could, and spent the rest of the night playing cards. The next day, they called Franks's mother a second time to try to enact the rest of the ransom scheme the ruse, but the plan stalled when a family member forgot the address where they were supposed to make the payment, and then Franks's body was found anyway in Indiana, so the kidnapping ruse was over. Meanwhile, Leopold and Loeb went to work destroying the typewriter, which they had used for the ransom note, and they burned a car blanket that they had used to move the body. Their plan at that point was to go about their daily lives. Loeb, for his part, stuck to the plan, uh, performing his daily routine and generally laying low. Leopold, on the other hand, was almost ridiculous in his attempts to prove his uber-mentioned status. 
He talked to reporters and police detectives, offering up theories about what had happened to Bobby Franks. He said to one reporter, quote, If I were to murder anybody, it would be just such a cocky little son of a bitch as Bobby Franks. End quote. Today, police would be looking for DNA. Fifty years ago, they'd have been looking for fingerprints. But even then, a hundred years ago, Police had their methods. They found a pair of eyeglasses near the crime scene, and this is kind of incredible. The frames were average, and the lenses were a common prescription. But they were outfitted with a particular kind of hinge that had only been sold to three customers in Chicago. One of those three customers was Leopold. Questioned, Leopold said the glasses must have dropped from his pocket the weekend before. He claimed he was at that spot bird-watching. He was, in fact, an ornithologist, but even so, it would it's hard to believe that the police would have accepted that coincidence when he was also somebody who knew Bobby Franks and who had been in the, in the paper for saying he would have killed Bobby Franks if he was going to murder anybody. So now... Both Leopold and Loeb were brought in for questioning, and at first they said that they had spent the evening picking up some women and dropping them off at a golf course later without having learned their names. This already shaky alibi was shattered when Leopold's chauffeur and his wife both confirmed that Leopold's car was in the garage being repaired on that night, and it was discovered that Leopold had in fact rented a car. The typewriter was recovered from a nearby lagoon, Loeb confessed first, claiming that Leopold had been the planner and the one who swung the chisel. Leopold confessed after that, claiming that he had driven and Loeb had been the killer. Two supermen, suddenly little children pointing fingers at one another, desperately trying to avoid their punishment. At trial, they confessed that they had been driven by their desire to seek thrills and their delusions of being ubermensch. Leopold said he wanted to know what it felt like to be a murderer, and he had been disappointed to learn that afterwards he felt the same as ever. The two men escaped the death penalty thanks to Clarence Darrow's plea and the precedents cited by the judge, but they were sentenced to life in prison for the murder plus 99 years for the kidnapping. Loeb died after about 10 years in jail, sliced to death by a fellow prisoner with a straight razor. Leopold lived a long life and returned to his study of watching birds. Both men worked on improving the prison's school system, and Leopold later reorganized his prison library and volunteered to be a subject in a malaria study. And he later said that everything he did, the volunteer work, the prison reform efforts, all of it was an attempt to make up for his crime, much as Dostoevsky would have predicted. Leopold and Loeb's story is a reminder, especially to young men, that you are not particularly special. You might feel that way. You might feel you have this special destiny and this capacity for greatness and that it's incumbent upon you to rise above the masses and live a life beyond convention. You might read Nietzsche and style yourself as a Zarathustra. 
forgetting that Nietzsche himself died in the grip of madness, throwing his arms around a horse and weeping, before descending into a horrible decade of illness and strokes and paralysis. You might read Crime and Punishment and think, this is me, I too am destined for Napoleonic greatness, and I'll demonstrate it via the ultimate transgression, smashing the laws that apply only to ordinary men, a murder that I will get away with and not feel the remorse that would bring down a lesser mortal. The truth, my friend, is that you are here like everyone else, and the best you can do is to work hard and play by the rules. Try not to hurt people. Be as good as you can to others. Put that selfish side of yours away. Greatness comes to those who read Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, who think those thoughts and then think better of them. Mm, hot take. We're against murder. <laughs> okay. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, Crime and Punishment, another whale harpooned and and yanked out of the ocean of literature, and I alone remaining to tell the tale. Well, we will have some guests on soon to help us out with some future tales. A pair of experts in Langston Hughes and our first Australian guest, Pip Williams who is a complete delight and a wonderful, book-loving author. We'll be talking to her. We're also going to read a Dostoevsky short story soon. What if I told you that Dostoevsky wrote a short story that put all of his themes into one tight little gem of a story, all his major ideas condensed? Well, wouldn't you be intrigued? Wouldn't you want to hear that story, maybe along with a little news and a little opening and a theme song at the start and the end and and it all wrapping up with a host saying i'm jack wilson thank you for listening and we'll see you next time tell me good sir or madam isn't that exactly what you'd want if i told you that there was such a story wouldn't you fall down on your knees and beg for it to be true that you could have such a story read to you with that very framework around it, the theme song, the hello, the see you next time, well, you are in luck. Your wish, as always, is my command. That's coming up next week. Dostoevsky's dream of a story. Hint, hint. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time 